Well, good morning. And if you see the title of the sermon, it's Imperishable Beauty. Doesn't that sound good? Imperishable Beauty. What's beautiful in the eyes of the world is always changing. And it can be taken away in any moment. But what is beautiful to God is everlasting, is unchanging. This passage this morning is mainly going to focus on instruction to women in the church. And let's, let's be honest, women are under assault by the culture. Telling you that your beauty is in your outward appearance. And that you have to keep up with certain trends. And that you have to hold yourself up and put yourself on display so that you can find value in the eyes of others. Or you don't have value unless you're able to earn an income and prove to everyone else that you are of worth because there are zeros in a a paycheck attached to you. What is beautiful in the eyes of the world, again, is very different than what is beautiful in the eyes of God. And so right up front, I just want to tell you there's a disclaimer to this message. It's not going to be politically correct. It is not going to be popular in the 21st century. And it's not going to be culturally sensitive, but it will be biblical. And it will be true to what Peter's point is here and the pattern we see throughout Scripture. To show God's design, to show God's order in creation, and to see things that are beautiful that God has declared that are beautiful. And it's totally counter-cultural. But as Christians, that's what we're called to be. Counter to the culture. We are to be a witness to the culture, not uh, to walk in line with the culture. So first, let's talk about this word beauty. It was interesting when a study was done of what people think of beauty when when they look at someone. How do you determine what is beautiful and what isn't? And it's interesting, a word that came up that you wouldn't normally think of is symmetry. They view beauty, people view beauty, beauty as, as symmetry. If the right side of your face matches with the left side of your face. And if you are put together in a way that looks orderly. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more with this word adornment. But symmetry is a result of order. And any order anywhere is going to point us to God, the creator who put things into perfect order. And so while we're searching for beauty in outward things, let us look past the pure external circumstances to look at God's order behind how he created us and what he desires for us. Now, these pastoral epistles, uh, Peter and, and Paul specifically, talk a lot about the marital relationship because that is the most perfect representation on earth of Christ and his church. The ultimate human relationship is that of a husband and a wife reflecting God's glory to one another and complimenting one another. And hopefully you get a better idea of what God's design is for marriage and for men and women and how he's, how he's created us and the things that he sees as beautiful. And this is something that the church should celebrate and promote and encourage in one another. But before we get to the pastoral epistles, everything that we know about men and women, we learn pretty much in Genesis 1 through 3. That God created all things and created them in order and created them good. And in the pinnacle, he created creatures in his image. Both male and female reflect the image of God. Just reflect him differently. And they reflect him beautifully. 
Because when we are faithful to how God has designed us and how God has called us, we reflect him. We reflect his image and we reflect the order in his creation. Regardless of what the world has to say, we look to scripture as our example. And so in the creation order, God does not do anything by chance. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. Everything is intentional. And the order is intentional. He created man. And then for man and from man, he created woman to be a complement, to be a helper to him. Now, right away, our culture has a hard time with this word helper. Well, that means that she's less th- than him, right? That uh, it's only about Adam and Eve's just there to support them. And we see submission and we see Support in this culture as being inferior, right? But in John 14, how is the Holy Spirit described as our helper? Does that make the Holy Spirit inferior to us? Or is that what love really looks like? Because when you truly love someone and you truly care about them, you want them to succeed. And you want to help them in that. And it is a great calling to be a helper in what God is doing. So much so that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is described as our helper. To bring us into righteousness. And that is where we get our picture for marriage. Not the culture that is obsessed with prenups and separate bank accounts in in divorces, but the Trinity, mutual submission to one another, very different, yet one in purpose to the glory of God. And so that is the foundation of everything we're going to look at this morning. Because Christ is our example for everything. And when we don't think that submission should be attached to us, or weakness should be attached to us, or helping should be attached to us. Christ left glory and took on submission and took on weakness and took on a serving attitude so that we could have glory and honor. He is our example. So when it's hard to serve, we look to Christ. When it's hard to help, we look to Christ. When it's hard to submit to one another, we look to Christ as our example. Let's look at our text this morning, and then let's walk back through it. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Start in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, you are the author of all things. You are the creator and sustainer of every order and every beauty. Lord, let us celebrate your design and your plan. Let us see ourselves as you see us. Through Christ, people called to be a shining example to the world. Vessels crafted by a beautiful potter who formed us in an exact way. We are not an accident. We are known and loved by you. Like we sung earlier, before you laid the world's foundation, you predestined to adopt us as your own. Lord, that we would rejoice in glory in who you have called us to be and how you've designed us not to fight against it. And that we would encourage in one another those qualities that bring you glory, that are precious. That we would to lift up each other in righteousness. And we would encourage one another in our differences to glorify you. Lord, let this passage speak to us. Let your spirit Work and teach and help us to understand you and your plan for us. We pray in the beautiful name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this passage starts with likewise. Where we've been the past couple weeks is submission and subjection in humility. First, it starts with the culture in general that Christians are to submit to authorities. Then we look at servants or workers, bond servants, uh, to submit to those in authority over you. Whether they deserve it or not, because you're submitting unto the Lord. When you walk through text the way we do in an expository manner, we go verse by verse, we don't skip anything. You get a week like last week where we talk about suffering. You get a week like this week where we talk about beauty. And it's amazing how God's word reaches our different aspects of our lives and, and gets to the very heart of who we are. And the first thing I want you to get before we get into this, this passage is we're going to look at some cultural examples and we're going to look at general principles. And for us, we, we can't read as a one-to-one comparison first century uh, cultural practices into the 21st century, but there are general principles that are underneath everything that we're looking at. And so we're going to focus on the principles. Okay, what do these specific first century examples uh, show to us and which principles can we learn from those? All right, so in verse one, we start with likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This word subject, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I think this is really helpful to understand this. This is actually a Greek military term. All right, why is that important? Because in the Greek military, to be subject to someone is to put in order under a leader. That means there is someone who is in, in charge or someone who is, who is leading, and you are to fall in line behind that into a singular mission. And so that's what subjection means. And then outside of the military context, it becomes a voluntary action. 
going to put myself under your leadership for a unified mission. That is the picture of marriage going all the way back to Genesis 2 where God lays that out for us. And, and again, it's something else we need to clarify that this is specifically to wives. This is within the marital relationship. As some have done, where this is not to be distorted to think that all women are subject to all men at all times. It is not this at all. This is only to look in the marital relationship and how we relate to one another and how we complement one another. And so we're going to look at the specific cultural situation first and then the general principle. So let's keep reading. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. All right, so let's look at what was going on in the first century first. So in the first century, as you can imagine, it was not popular to be a Christian. And it was not the predominant religion. There were many gods and many religious practices. Um, and as we'll see a little bit later on, highest of all in the Roman culture was the religion where Caesar was, was God. And so if you were to say at any point in time that there is only one God and I will only worship him, then you're putting yourselves at odds with the culture. And so what would happen is that in a lot of the local churches, a lot of the, the gathering of, of believers is that a husband would come to Christ and not the wife. Or a wife would run into other women at the market and she would hear the gospel. And there was a temptation to leave their husbands because now he's a pagan. But there is a ministry here. There is a, a, a witness here that Christ changed women and through their witness, they can change their husbands. But in that house, until the husband comes to Christ, there's a lot of tension. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter here is addressing this specific situation in them, but he's also looking at a general principle. Because generally, we recognize God's order. And we recognize his order in, in marriage. And even just like the servants of last week, whether the master deserves it or not, you submit to him as unto the Lord. And so this applies in the marital relationship as well as a general principle, not into sin and not for the purpose of your own pride, but for the purpose of her husband, for not only his salvation, but also his sanctification. And I think it's important to remember, we just went through this in James, God does not show any partiality. Just because the husband is called to lead and the, wife, and the wife is called to submit, it does not mean she is inferior. It does not mean she is of any less value. Far from it. We both reflect God. We reflect him differently. We reflect him how he has designed for us to reflect him. And that is not presuppose inferiority. So be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word. All right. God's primary concern in the marital relationship is that it is according to God's word. And even if they don't obey, that you have a ministry by an example. Because with a faithful, diligent, patient spirit, you will put any rebellious man to shame. I mean, I can, I can speak to that personally. Cherie will tell you early on in our Relationship, And my mom will, will, will tell you early on, I was re rebellious from day two, probably. And Shri had to remind me as a, a, a new Christian of, of who I was. And 
stop doing things that are wrong, immoral, illegal, go, 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 go down the list. And to this day, Cherie is, is still that in my life, that by her example and by her re- reminder, even though I know the Lord, he uses her for my sanctification to remind me of my own sins. Because it wasn't for Sheree, I'd get myself into a lot more trouble, or what I normally call fun, but it's usually trouble. But in a marriage, her example has been so helpful to me. Because even though I obey the word, I don't always obey the word. And you can win your husband to, to salvation or to sanctification by your example. And to be that strong example because... If your husband is not leading well, but you are leading an example, that is an amazing witness. And that is an incredible ministry. And it has to be a difficult balance because I, I couldn't imagine what that would, what would be like to say, Lord, I'm, I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but yet he's, he's wrong and he's disobedient. And women, that's where ministry becomes more Draws you closer to the Lord, draws you closer in prayer, draws you deeper into your relationship with him because you recognize how dependent on him you are. And as we'll see later, men for us, our strength can be a stumbling block because we tend to trust in ourselves over trusting in God. And this is how we help one another. We'll get into that in a moment. Verse two continues with this description Uh, in verse one. So that even if some do not obey the word. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That is a beautiful calling. That is a beautiful command from the Lord. To be respectful and pure in conduct. And trust me, growth happens in us when we see that example in you. And I'm talking about men and women. There have been many times where I've been put to shame by the women in my life and the example that they've shown me in my rebelliousness. This word respectful comes from a root word uh, phobos, which is fear. So it's, it's a fearful, reverent respect. Because you fear God, you can respect your husband. This is a reverent fear of the Lord and his design not of a leader who will do well sometimes and make mistakes other times. So he continues in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear. Uh, this word is really interesting. You'll, you'll get a kick out of this. This is um, the, the Greek word is, is uh, cosmos, the, the, the Greek word root. Um, it's the same word we have for the, uh, the, the universe, the created order, but it's also where we get cosmology. So adorning is actually literally to put in order, to arrange or prepare. So cosmology is the science or study of putting women in order. That's, the, that's what the, the root of, of that is. And so adorning is how you put yourself in order, how you arrange yourself. And this is, this is very telling because it can be easy to assume your adorning is only external. And there's repetition in this. And we know from our studies that whenever a word is repeated, like adorning, it's, it's for emphasis. How are you putting yourself together? How are you arranging yourself? What is important in the way that you arrange yourself? 
Uh, there's also a parallel passage in 1 Timothy 2, and we won't get there, but if you want to look at it, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10 talks about this as well, um, about women's witness in the, the church and how they carry themselves and how they, they, they dress. And, and so remember what I said earlier. This is about the, the principle, not the certain situation. Does this mean that you should never look good and never braid your hair and never wear jewelry and never dress up? Of course not. But the principle beneath it is every time we get dressed, every time we put ourselves together without even thinking about it, we're thinking about what message do I want to send? When I put this shirt on versus this shirt, when I wear this makeup versus this, when I do this with my hair, for some of us who have it, versus this, what, what am I saying? What do I want people to think about me? And we're, we're trained to do that. We're trained to do that from a young age, and it's, and it's sad. And when the, the culture around us, uh, around us markets clothing and markets jewelry and markets makeup, it is, look at me, pay attention to me, more people notice me. It's, it's feeding into this external adornment, which is extremely worldly because like we looked at earlier, and all of us know this is so fading. Beauty fades. Our outward appearance fades. We all know that. But is that where we really find our value? What we should never forget is the true effects of the gospel. True adornment in Christ is a transformed mind, a regenerated heart, renewed actions. Because we are in Christ and we have value in him eternally, we no longer have to seek our value in external things. And that will put you at odds with the culture. Every day of your life, you're going to be bombarded to find your value in external things. Peter goes into that. Verse 4. But let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Not external, but internal and eternal. We're not to focus on our external adorning, but our internal adorning and our eternal adorning. Because God has said that we are precious in his sight, that we are his and we are heirs. That is an eternal adorning, that we have a crown of glory waiting for us. Those are the adornings that we celebrate and that we focus on. Just want to look at these words very, very quickly. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That's, that's a literal translation of, of, of the Greek. Not this outward person, not what you want people to think, but who are you really? Be adorned with beauty inside, where only God sees. And just as we get to know one another, let's get to know what, what God sees. Let's not... Like we studied in James and spent a lot of time talking about, let's not judge on what, what happens on the, on the outside and, and put people into categories, but let's get to know one another in, in a way. How has God wired you? What are your gifts? What is truly beautiful about you that the world can't take away, that the world can't change? Our internal adornment, precious to God, imperishable beauty. That is real beauty. And we see, sadly, with a limited view. We see what's in front of our eyes. But God sees things in the realm of eternity. When the heavens and earth pass away, 
what's really going to stand? What brings glory to God? What stores up treasures in heaven? And that can be a great encouragement to us. Because when our bodies fail and our looks fail and our jobs fail, we look to the things that are beautiful forever. So he goes on and talked about a uh, gentle and quiet spirit. He says gentle, this, is, uh, uh, this, this word has an uh, internal meaning. It is, it is meekness. It is not self-seeking. It is a gentleness from within. And a quiet spirit is an outward countenance, our outward conduct. So internally and externally, women, you have a great example to be caring and loving and kind and patience and put us to shame in that. Because those are things that are part of God's very nature and that he has given you to reflect him. And we can all learn from that. Because that is what's precious in God's sight. What is beautiful to God is a gentle and quiet spirit, a hidden person with imperishable beauty. Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that God does not see as man sees, but he sees the heart. And who we are inside, like we've seen in James, will eventually come out. Let's be those beautiful people inside. And focus on what brings God glory and what's beautiful to him rather than external adornment. All right, let's continue on. So now we get to another historical example, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. All right, this beautiful hope. Women who hoped in God, not their husbands. We're going to see Sarah in a moment. We're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah for a little bit. But I want us to think about this hope. Because you hope in God, regardless of what anything does to you, even your husband or even your wife, it shouldn't change your hope. But because you hope in God, because your faith is in him, you can love someone even when they're unloving. You can love someone even when they do stupid things. And you can love someone in the way that Christ loved us when we didn't deserve to be loved. Now, Abraham and, and Sarah, as we're going to see in verse 6 here, uh, read through verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, we're going to unpack this in just a second, but. Abraham and Sarah. This is an interesting example, right? Because Abraham is the one who God chooses to be the father of many nations, to be the father of all of his people. How did Abraham treat his wife? If you guys remember Genesis, Abraham tried to pass her off as his sister, and she was kind of a sister. It said that they had the same father but different mothers. But he denies her as, her, as his wife. Because she is so beautiful, he's fearful of what the kings of the other nations will do to him. Because of the beauty of his wife. This is a great example of a husband, right? And Sarah, she's got her own baggage as well. She didn't trust in the Lord, so she sends in her maidservant trying to force God's hand to give an heir to the family. And we, that turned into Ishmael, and God was eventually 
uh, obviously faithful with Isaac. But this, we're, we're not to look at them in every aspect of their lives, but in, but in certain things. Because even when Abraham was a scoundrel, and even when Abraham put her in danger, she respected him, and she followed him, even though he didn't deserve it. And God protected and provided her, and made her an example of what a godly woman looks like. Leaves hope for us, right? Because none of us have screwed up that bad, I, I hope. So let's, let's get into the language of this verse, because this, this verse causes people problems. Um, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, uh, calling him Lord. All right. See, this is a lowercase l here. We're going to talk about this, this word Lord for a minute. This, this word kurios, it's, it's the same word used as uh, Lord. So it, it has, that we apply to Jesus, it has a, a range of meanings. From the Lord above uh, to a common term like, like sir. Um, I don't like them, but if you like any of those period pieces or those, those, those British shows and they say my Lord and my, my lady, that was actually commonplace throughout most of, of, of history. We'd use these very proper terms toward one another, my Lord, my lady, as, as a, a term of endearment and, and respect. Um, and so it is lowercase L in this sense. Don't ever make it uppercase L. Your husband is not your Lord, and husbands, you better not think that you are the Lord of your wife. And sometimes it just, it just sits weird. I have to call someone else Lord. I don't like respecting someone like that. But let's, let's do a little experiment. I just want to put this to the test. Husbands and wives. Wives first. Try this once this week. Just out of nowhere, Christy's shaking her head. Say, thank you, my Lord. Right? Check this out. Your, your, I guarantee you, your husband would stand a foot tall. He would, because we want nothing more than to be respected by our wives. We want nothing more than to know that we are appreciated and valued by you. And likewise, guys, if you open the door, if you do a little bow and say, my lady, and, and walk her in, Make him breakfast in bed. <laughs> Do it again. You probably haven't done it enough. And so we can respect one another. And we can take these examples and see how do we apply this to our lives? How did Sarah love Abraham? How did Abraham love Sarah? Even if, he, even if he's a negative example most times. I think this is interesting about Sarah. Sarah is described several times, either two or three times, for her beauty. She was so beautiful. This is why, even into her 60s or 70s, the second time that he tried, Abraham tries to pass her off as his sister. And that's, that's beautiful. That everyone, everyone ascribed beauty to her throughout her, her, her years. There's a span of decades between these two stories. But Peter doesn't use her as an example for outward beauty but her inward beauty and the way that she carried herself and the way that she conducted herself and her obedience and her courage. It says, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightful. How much courage does it take to follow 
your husband out of the land that you know into the wilderness following God's plan? How much courage does it take to go into strange nations and be uh, agreed to, to be called your sister because your, your husband's fearful? How much courage does it take to trust in the Lord until you're 75 before you actually get the child of promise? That is a woman of courage. That is a godly example in that example. Okay, so we've set the, the tone with uh, the wives side of this. And yes, the husband's side is, it is short, uh, but it is not without depth and strength. We continue the same way we started in verse 1, we start in verse 7. Likewise, this is in the spirit of mutual submission and respect the respecting the other because we love and fear the Lord. The same spirit of humility. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, we're going to walk through that as well. The first thing I want you to see that, guys, we are to love our wives in a way that recognizes the beauty that God sees. Your wife is made in his image. Your wife is a child of the king. And it, you can compliment her inward beauty and her outward beauty probably more than you should. Excuse me, more than you do. You should compliment her more than, more than you do. Yeah, I stumbled that a little bit. It's all right. Um, because we are to honor her as made in God's image and beautiful to God and, and celebrate the things that, that God celebrates. Her gentleness, her pure spirit. And honor her internally and externally. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So let's talk about this, this uh, sense of being a vessel. We see all the way through scripture that God makes and crafts us into his image. So the same potter that made men made women. And made them different. So which is stronger, a wooden bowl or fine china? The wooden bowl is stronger. The fine china would be weaker, but it is more valuable. And so we have to resist reading into Scripture with our 21st century eyes that, that, that weakness is always a bad thing, that I always want to be strong. Guys, sometimes we're just that durable wooden bowl that can be knocked around. We remember that our wives are fine china. They are, they are crafted by the God of the universe to reflect him. And their beauty is a witness of him and his creation. Both are equally crafted and both are equally valuable. But they have, but they're different in use. I think that's important for us to see as, as we relate to one another. Because there's always a temptation to expect the opposite sex to be just like us. Why don't you think like I do? Why don't you act like I do? Why, why, why are you crying? Why aren't you crying? We are different vessels and we're made differently to complement one another. And we are to embrace our weaknesses. Embrace our weakness to give opportunity for Christ's strength. You don't think so? Paul is the example of strength talks very, very much about his own weakness. Paul, who was beaten, who was put in chains, who was stoned, went all over 
the, the known world at that time, planning churches and evangelizing, boasts in his own weakness. There's going to be a few of these verses up on the screen. But I want to walk through a couple just to give you an idea. What does Paul say just in the two letters to the Corinthians about weakness? 1 Corinthians 1.25. 1 Corinthians 1.25. says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even in the smallest biblical principle, the weakest The weakest weakness of God is stronger than anything man has. The littlest of the principles in Scripture are stronger than what any man can offer. Let's flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. 2 Corinthians 11, 30 says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, if you don't know the context, you're wondering, what is Paul talking about here? Paul's, Paul spends two chapters on his own suffering. He talks about the stonings. He talks about the beatings. And Paul is an amazing evangelist. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are coming to Christ by a direct, uh, a, a direct implication of his ministry. But hundreds and thousands more, if not through the people he's trained. But Paul isn't boasting in what he's done. If I must boast, I will only boast of the things that show my weakness. So that Christ gets the glory. As we go on, we're going to see they get more and more powerful. In chapter 12, Paul talks about the thorn in his side that he asks for for the Lord to remove. And how does Jesus respond to him? In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's not a bad thing in the eyes of God to be weak and let Christ be strong. It's a noble thing. And that's why I said earlier, men, for us to trust in our strength is a huge temptation for us. And it gets in between our relationship with God and our wives many times because we want to do things, we want to fix things, we want to put it all on our own shoulders. And many times we ought to rest in our weaknesses so that we can see Christ's strength and have him work through us. One more verse. Chapter 13, verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. This is powerful. Because Christ died in weakness. If you're afraid of being weak, our Savior was not afraid to be weak for you. We are also weak in him. Our weakness is in the strength of the power of God. And so when Peter talks about the woman as being the weaker vessel, I mean, yes, obviously there are physical implications here. But weakness is not always a a bad thing. Because if you trust in your own uh, strength, you're going to have a hard time. But if you recognize your, your weakness and give room for Christ's strength, how much more powerful will your ministry be? 
Proverbs 31, this, the, the, the great picture of the godly woman, mentions strength several times. Uh, talks about her strength in different scenarios. Now, is there a contradiction here? I don't think so. Because whenever Proverbs 31 mentions strength, it's, the woman is strong first because she fears the Lord. She's strong again when she respects her husband. She's strong as she cares for her family. She's strong as she works hard and is not affected with what anyone else does. She doesn't care what anyone else is doing in the marketplace. She's on a mission to care for her family because she fears the Lord. That is what a strong Christian woman looks like. And we have many capable, smart confident, intelligent women in this congregation, and it is to our credit, and it is a good thing that we celebrate. I just want to encourage you to find your strength in the things that are precious in God's sight. Don't succumb to the pressures of culture. Remember, your Father has made you, and has made you beautiful in His sight. I want to share an example with you before we close. So one of the earliest martyrs in the church was a woman named Perpetua. If you haven't read this, it's an amazing story. It's way too long uh, to, to, to share with you. But it's one of the only accounts from the first two centuries that we have written in someone's hand uh, that she writes most of her own story, and when she goes to her death, someone else writes the second half. But it is incredible. In the year 202, uh, we know that Christians are a big friend of Rome, right? It's Caesar's birthday. And he wants to put on a big show, and he's looking for sport. So all these people are coming up before trial, many of them Christians. Among them, two women, Perpetua and Felicitas. Uh, Since Perpetua writes it, more of the details are about her, but you'll get a little bit about uh, Felicitas later on. This is a woman who is amazing. And her testimony became a rallying cry for the early church for centuries. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts. Um, I send out our emails every week. I'll send out the entire thing tomorrow. Um, but I just want to read a, a couple excerpts from her testimony. And they'll actually be up on the, on the screen. Um, so I'm just going to, I just pulled out a few different lines. There's a lot of things going on in here. Uh, but as she's facing a trial and she's d- distraught, her father's elderly. Her, her father does not know the Lord and he is pleading with her. Because all she's required to do is offer up a sacrifice to Caesar and they will let her go. Now, also what builds up in the story is she's been in jail for quite some time. And they finally let her, through the process, they let her have her baby in jail. She's nursing in jail. So her father's pleading with her to think about herself, think about her family, think about her child. So the first time her father approaches her, here's what she says. It will all happen on the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. When she, when she senses that she's going to go be martyred and she has a, a vision that this is going to happen, this is her response to her father. It's according to God's will. She's set up with a mock trial. Uh, pre- pretty much the, the trial is either worship Caesar or, or die. The governor, Hilarionus, added, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. And the response of Perpetua is straightforward. I will not. Are you a Christian then? Asked the governor. Yes, I am. Perpetua responded decisively. 
the procurator then delivered judgment on all of us and condemned us to the wild beasts. And we went down cheerfully in the dungeon. The story goes on to say they were singing psalms and praising God that they get to be called martyrs for the name of Christ. So when she's led out in her execution, the crowd roars and cheers for her blood to be spilt. But her response boldly above the shouts is, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you. And there is an eyewitness, uh, her friend who continues the account after she's led out to her death. And he says this, Perpetua was the first let in. She is charged by a large animal and tossed into the air. And she fell on her hips. When she saw her tunic was torn from her side, she drew it over her as a veil for her middle, rather mindful of her modesty than her suffering. The animal didn't kill her the first time. They, they sent him out again. They sent her out again to be gourds by a wild leopard, I believe. When she was called for again, she bound up her disheveled hair. It was not becoming of a martyr to suffer with disheveled hair, lest she should appear to be mourning in her glory. And in her death, she calls a couple young disciples who were. Uh, th- this was a long process. This went on and on until they died. And she called these young disciples, a couple young men who were, who were trying to bring her food and water during this. She says to them, stand fast in the faith and love one another, all of you, and do not be offended at my sufferings. Her legacy is amazing. Perpetua was only 22 years old when she died in the arena at Carthage. Her bold testimony is, I am a Christian and cannot die Christ. It was repeated throughout the empire for centuries. Those in the amphitheater who had witnessed her martyrdom reported that Perpetua and Felicitas came into the arena. This beautiful picture of a godly woman. And so this is a summary of of the account and uh, interspersed with quotes. Perpetua and Felicitas came into the arena joyfully as though they were on their way to heaven. Witnesses described Perpetua in the arena as young and beautiful, a pure and modest Christian lady with a shining countenance and calm step. As the beloved of God, as a bride of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. As perpetua means perpetual, and felicitous means faithful, their courage, martyrdom, spells out always faithful. So as we conclude this morning, for the Christian, is it like the world that beauty is only skin deep? Or is our beauty so much deeper than the skin that reflects God's order and things that have value for eternity? Because the world will either tell a woman that she needs to be independent and domineering, earning her value, or overtly sexual in order to get your way in life. Both are completely opposed to the way God celebrates his children. Or you can celebrate that he made you female made you in his image with characteristics that are inherently his and he wants you to embrace them. God made you caring and comforting and gentle and your conduct is your witness to Christ's work in your life. And men, for us, we recognize how God made the women in our lives and we celebrate that and we guard that in them, not taking advantage of them, but serving and encouraging the qualities in them that are pleasing to God. For his glory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you saw to make us into your image. Call us by your name. That we would reflect you. How could we ever grasp what it means to look like you? Lord, help us in our weakness. Give us your strength in the midst of our struggles. Help us to see the beauty in your creation. The beauty in who you called us to be. That we are the pinnacle of your created order. That, God, that we would serve one another well. That we would love one another well because of your love to us. And that we would celebrate in our internal beauty and the things that matter for eternity. The imperishable beauty of your children. Lord, thank you for the godly women examples in our congregation. Thank you for their witness and their work in our lives as mothers and wives and sisters. And Lord, I just pray for the godly men in our congregation that we would love them well, serve them well, and lead them well, all so that our families would be a witness and a bold proclamation of what a transformed life looks like through Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.